I looked into the mirror for the first time since my accident. Fuck off, I hate you, I said to the middle-aged man staring back at me. His hair had been shaved, he was a skull, his eyes a shock of blue in his pale face. He had high cheekbones, a cut on the cheek and on the lip. His eyebrows were silver. Where have you gone, Saul? All that beauty blown to bits. Who were you? What languages do you speak? Are you a son and a brother and a father? Are you an acquisition? How do you get along with your female colleagues? What is the point of them in your view? What is the point of yourself in their view? Are you there to do something for them? Or are they there to do something for you? Are they a foil for your ambitions? Or are you a foil for theirs? In what ways do you thwart, oppose, derail or support each other? Which ways do you vote? Are you a good historian? Did you ever play football, cricket, ping pong? Are you curious about other people? Or do you walk on the outer edges of life, indifferent, remote, tormented by the affection humans seem to feel for each other? Are other men envious of you? Are you loving? Have you ever been loved? Yes, I have been loved, and I am loving, I said to the man in the mirror. I am all those things. I am, I am. Hi there, I'm Jason Gotts, and you're listening to Think Again, a Big Think podcast. And just a moment ago, that was author Deborah Levy reading a passage from her latest novel, The Man Who Saw Everything. While reading it and her recent autobiography, The Cost of Living, I often found myself pausing and kind of sinking into a passage I'd just read, going back and rereading it, not because my attention had wandered, nor exactly to unpack an idea, but because I felt the need to experience it over again, to have it happen to me. Levy started her career writing plays that have been staged by the Royal Shakespeare Company and broadcast by the BBC. She is the author of multiple novels, several of which have been Man Booker Prize finalists, the short story collection Black Vodka, and two of what Levy has called living autobiographies. The two books of hers I've read are packed with ideas, but like great theater, they treat ideas as verbs. They're thought in action. In a sense, they defy you to talk about them. I wonder how we're going to. Welcome to Think Again, Deborah. <laughs> Maybe we can start by going back to that passage that you just read, which I think it has all kinds of resonance in it, not only for not only within the novel, The Man Who Saw Everything, although definitely there, but also just more broadly about about what it is to write a character and what it is to be a self. As I listen to Saul kind of defining himself or coming back to himself or finding something to latch on to, you know, there's a part of me that wants to say, I'm not sure I believe him. Mm -hmm. That's fair enough. Um, in that passage I just read, uh, the reader meets Saul, age 56, right? And uh, we first meet him, age 28, crossing the Abbey Road zebra crossing right. in, in London. 
and uh, he's a freakishly beautiful man. So I wanted to write about male beauty. It's quite a lot about female beauty, but um, I wanted to turn my attention to a man who, who, um, you know, what kind of power does his own beauty give him right. and what does it take away from him? And um, so Jennifer Moreau, who is his girlfriend when he is 28, is a photographer. Right. And he's a slippery guy, Saul Adler. He's very much in demand. Everybody wants a piece of him. And uh, the only way that she can kind of possess him is to take photographs of him. Right. At the same time, she forbids him to ever describe her beauty, right, or her body. Right. And he's thinking, this is a weird deal because you're taking, <laughs> you're taking photographs of me all the time. Right. So I've flipped the gaze there. So by the time I, we get to that kind of monologue from Saul, quite a lot of stuff has happened. He's a man who's been knocked over, right. has been run down on a zebra crossing. Right. And he's coming into consciousness. But that works two ways, right? Literally and sort of psychologically, if you like. So he is coming to, I think is the expression, but he's also piecing together parts of his own personal history. And he's looking at himself almost like a stranger in that monologue. Like, who, who, who are you? You know, reality in the book is very strange and we don't know finally kind of what has actually happened and what hasn't, or it's a little, it's a little disorienting in that way from where we begin to where we mm -hmm. end up. But in a way, it feels like that is always the case with Saul, that Saul is, you know, there's something provisional about him. I'd like to say that that's true of everyone, that everyone is kind of writing themselves into existence. Everyone is perceived from outside. We have Saul as seen by Jennifer. We have Saul here trying to figure out who he is. But at each of these moments, as I see his life happening, I'm seeing a person in process, which I think is what, what every sure person thing. is. Yeah. yeah. Because it would be quite dull to write a <laughs> character who never shifts, never changes, right. who is so certain and uh, rigid. Unless that's the subject, you know. I, right. I mean, you, you, you could go that way. So I'm looking at a kind of shifting masculinity with Saul. Like he's not the man his father wants him to be. Right. His father's a really authoritarian, dogmatic guy. And he finds his son effeminate. He finds him, he's embarrassed by him. And I pick that up when Saul goes off to communist East Germany, the GDR, in 1988. There's this authoritarian regime, right? Right. And Saul sort of feels familiar with it because it's the regime of his father, his upbringing. Right. So I'm just kind of looking at a personal history, which is Saul Adler's, and then a collective history, which is post-war Europe, a, a utopia that was also a dystopia mm. in the GDR in 1988. And I collapse those two time zones so that there's a little bit of 
1988 in part two, which is set in 2016, right. and a bit of 2016, that's the future, mm -hmm. in 1988. And why is that? There are no mystical reasons. It's not a gimmick. It's the way that Saul is going to recall, not particularly chronologically, some major events in his life at a very extreme time right. in his life. What I'm stuck on here is this idea, like, he's watched by Jennifer, he's watched in the GDR, he's being surveilled. Right. And I find myself asking throughout, throughout the book, as he is asking here, who really is Saul Adler? I mean, we know that he falls in, we know that he falls in love, or we are to believe that that love is real, I think, with Walter um, right. Mueller. You know, but in that relationship with Jennifer, it's very hard. As you say, he's extremely slippery. I find him very slippery. I feel like <laughs> I'm watching, I feel like I'm watching him, well, I am literally watching him in some ways through other eyes, but I feel like I'm watching Mercury and I'm wondering, I'm wondering whether what you're trying to say is something about Saul, something about everybody, something about characters as written. So I'm looking at Saul like this. He's a man who really finds it very difficult to attach, to commit to love. He's very careless with people, right? but he's also loving because it wouldn't be interesting if he wasn't, right? Right. Because the more I write, the more I realize that love is so much more subversive than hate because there's more to lose. There's more at stake. Subversive of what? Um, well, if you write a hater and you write someone who actually can feel and give love uh, with all the flaws right. that we all have in that kind of story, there's more to lose, right, with love. So he loses Jennifer. He has a 30-year argument with Jennifer Moreau. Right. Why argue for three days if you can argue for 30 years, <laughs> right? Yeah. And she fills in some of the history that he has left out in their life together. That's right. So there are other subjectivities filling in the parts of his own life and his own behavior that he, he would rather kind of leave out. If you and I told our own histories. I think we'd tell it in our favor, right? Right, so sure. So we'd, 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 uh, we'd leave out quite a bit and try to present ourselves favorably, which is why first dates are always so interesting. <laughs> right. Always make me laugh, you know. Um, I can't remember any. <laughs> <laughs> I, feel like, I feel like all the relationships just kind of happened. I think that uh, as you get to know someone, more of their past begins to emerge for better or worse. Sure. So Jennifer fills in some of the gaps in the story. And Walter Muller, he's there. Well, what do you reckon? Is, is he the man who saw everything? He's spying on Saul. I don't know exactly what Walter saw because he has a sort of settled superior air about him and we know that he knows more than exactly is let on. We don't, we don't exactly have access to the full report. I think an important part of Walter's gaze is that absence of information. The amount of time that we get to spend with the two of them together is very fleeting in a it sense. Is. And so... 
you know, it's like we have the sense that something and we see that something very real has happened, but but the, there is also much that's unsaid. I was thinking as you were talking again about beauty, uh, male beauty or f female beauty, about what, what a strange thing it is, because it obviously, it so obviously defines so much of Saul's experience. He is perceived in this way. He, others are attracted and drawn to him. He's used to being looked at. He enjoys, I suppose, on some level, although it's also an ambivalent experience, sometimes all of the, all of the watching. Um, but like that question of to what extent is beauty, a person's beauty, which can be so defining of them and so much a part of their experience of the world, who they are. It's something like you, you can't see yourself and you, you get a sense of yourself through the gaze of others right. because people are always looking at you. But, but that's not yourself uh, self in a way, you know, it's your face, it's your body. Well, you know, uh, there's, a, there's, a, there's an argument about, uh, there's, there's a theme rather in, mm. in my book about narcissism because some of the key words in, in our culture in the first two decades of the 21st century uh, narcissism, authoritarianism, mm -hmm. nationalism, this is happening in the world. So a narcissist really can't see himself. He has to always have affirmation from others to kind of put himself together. Um, and I work the myth of narcissists in, in my book in, in quite a weird way because Saul Adler, he's crossing the Abbey Road zebra. This jaguar doesn't stop. Saul looks at himself, at his reflection in the wing mirror. Mm. There's a collision. The wing mirror shatters and the shards from the mirror actually pierce his, his head. That's why he ends up in hospital. Right. So it's like his own reflection has fallen into him. And then the Jaguar, which is this pretty um, flash vintage cool vehicle, how that runs him over, hmm. sort of has another life in the GDR, doesn't it? Because he meets Luna. Right. Walter's sister, who's a big Beatles fan. And she has a phobia about Jaguars. And like Saul goes, what, the cat? And uh, there is a belief or a kind of a, a myth that arises in the story that there is a Jaguar prowling about there's somewhere. There's a Jaguar <laughs> prowling about <laughs> yeah. the city this, yeah. in East Berlin. Yeah. And she, like Luna, wants to, she really got a phobia about Jaguars. She wants to shut the doors, close the windows in case a Jaguar gets in. So there's a Jaguar, what's a phobia? I mean, in a way, there's a Jaguar inside Luna's head, right? That's the cat. Mm. And there's also quite literally a jaguar inside Saul's head. But who's telling the story? It's Saul. So these two jaguars have a, a sort of strange, a strange internal logic, don't they? Yeah, but yeah. a true logic in the story. It's quite a straightforward story told by a man whose consciousness is very fragmented and who would very much like us, the reader, to believe that <laughs> he would like to tell the story in his favor, but other people intervene. And that's Jennifer Moreau, Walter Muller, and his last friend, Jack. And I, d I think it's not 
a simple situation where we feel that there's one Saul that Saul wants to be, and there's another, and there are other Sauls that are, you know, the real Saul that are being explained by other people. There, it's problematic all the way around. Well, if a character doesn't have a problem, <laughs> there's no book to write. Sure. So, so you know that there's that moment when uh, Jennifer Moreau is now 51, and she's by his side in hospital. She's by his bed, and, right. and they're talking, and he's not in a good way. And he grabs her hand in his hand, and he puts her hand and his hand under his pajamas, onto his chest. His heart is beating frantically. It's not going to beat forever, right, for Saul? And he says to her, I didn't know how to be the man you wanted to me to be I could barely feel things mm. and you think there's going to be a kind of reconciliation and then he says but you took our son you took our son to live in America and he's he and, and that reconciliation stops there and then I pick it up later so I think that's what life is like we're all supposed to be like feeling things all the time and being so <laughs> sort of emotionally true and emotionally literate but actually I think it's what we what we can't feel really overwhelming feelings we can't feel them they have to come to us in sort of bite-sized chunks before right. we can access them it's as if real time and processing time are in separate streams for us I mean that like think things do you think that's true that in life? Is, absolutely that's what i mean like in in our lives things are things are happening and we don't have we're meant to as you say in a sense be in sync with events be in the moment but there's a whole separate river yeah. of, of processing or or whatever you exactly. might call it yeah. and i think that the novel has to kind of take that in and do something with it so in all my novels i guess um what I really don't want is a grand narrator, a sort of all-seeing, wise narrator, whether he's a fool or, or wise. Right. Uh, I don't want that. So Saul is a fragile narrator. I like that sort of narrator. And he has a lot of humor, you know. I reckon that I want to give space to just messing up a bit in life. Mm. So, so in my novel Hot Milk, Sophia is 25 she feels a failure in her life right and she's caring for her very high-spirited you could say bullying mother and her mother has used her hypochondria to keep her daughter to her side for much too long in life and Sophia just she needs to be bolder and she needs to break free but I give her a lot of space in that novel, Hot Milk, to mess up, to try things out, to fall in love with people who might not be good for her, to walk in the sun without sunblock mm. and get really burnt up. She's got very curly hair. She decides for the summer she's not going to brush her hair. <laughs> so she, she starts to look quite monstrous. And there I'm working with the Medusa myth. Mm. Experiments with self. Though. Experiments 
experiments with life, experiments yeah. with not always having to be so goal orientated, not always having to be perfect, not always, you know, especially for female characters, because young women are always being told what to wear and what not to wear, how loudly to speak or how softly, not so softly, just always being spoken for and spoken over, why not just have some space to find out what it is you really desire and what you really want? And you can only do that by making some mistakes. That brings me to something that I know you've talked about before, but this is one of those ideas that I think is always evolving. Freedom. And, you know, I'm, I'm thinking specifically about the I'm thinking about the cost of living mm -hmm. and about the idea of freedom in there. And I'm also thinking about freedom as a writer, freedom as an artist, mm -hmm. and, and whatever that means in terms of navigating whatever one thinks of as a career. I think about that a lot with, with art. I think about the kind of pressures that there are and pressures that I think there are increasingly are to kind of pack oneself into little packageable bubbles and the kind of act of resistance that it is to try to to do the kind of thing that you do, which is to really push beyond, push into new forms, give yourself the space, as you said, you gave to your character hmm. to stretch out with right. all the risks that that involves. What makes a book dull to read? I guess that's when a writer has paid too much attention to the health and safety regulations for getting published. <laughs> and there will be some very sort of sad ideas, actually, for that writer if they're obedient to a linear story with no break in chronology, unbelievable moral resolutions, everything, <laughs> everything tied up. Because the point of writing... And for myself uh, in reading mm. is that it's a place where we can have some freedom of thought. That sounds easy, but it's not so easy. You know, you have a first thought and we censor it. So then you let that thought come back. And it's those thoughts that are slightly awkward, aren't they, that need an airing. If you're doing something new, that there's an element, I think, even if you're a very brave and courageous person, there's an element of fear in that. Like, Definitely. how do you wrestle with fear in that process? <laughs> what do you do? I mean, do you just write more? Do you feel yourself no. self-censoring and, you know, just allow yourself to, I, I mean, I don't find your prose this way, but I always think about like, Henry Miller as this sort of great vomiter forth of prose, you know, and, and, and that, that him doing that in some way to overcome the whatever might restrain him otherwise. But that's not what you do. That's not really what I mean, yeah. no. I think every writer is incredibly, has this fear every time he starts a new book. It doesn't matter how many we've written. Can I do this? Can I reach for my ideas? Can I land this? There were times writing hot milk when I remember I, I wrote the scene where uh, Sophia is going to take her mother in her wheelchair across a road and leave her in the middle of the road mm. and drive off. And I thought, you know what? This is going to sink your book. You can't do that. And I guess then there's a question that goes, okay, why don't you write it? See what happens. You're really turning up the flame here. See what happens. You can delete it. 
Right. And in fact, it turned out to be, it turned out to change the book. The, the stakes for the book felt truer psychologically. So I always go, do you believe this, Deborah? Is this, you know, there's a sort of psychological truth to it, then mm. you can kind of write it. I write in a very spare prose, right? Sure. Quite an eco economic way, and that's because of the edits, and that's because of many, many drafts. So I'm a brutal editor of my own work. Okay. Um, and I guess the, the main thing for me, because I write, uh, I want to write page turners because I write about big existential subjects. So you've got to keep the writer on the bus. <laughs> gotcha. and, uh, <laughs> and so I want there to be a lot at stake in my books. And that's like right, life could, too, isn't it? There's a lot at stake. Yeah, I was thinking of uh, Roberto Bolaño, who as great as he is in many moments, there was like he's writing big existential mm -hmm. themes. And I found myself adrift you know on many the books are not spare in the same way that yours are and i'm not this isn't a blanket critique okay. of bologna i think but it's okay to be adrift i think that's fine that's sometimes a nice place to be in but it's not actually my game mm. i like quite old-fashioned things in my books you you might be surprised to hear like like who wants what Right. And what's stopping them from getting it? Well, you you came from theater as well. Well, I learned from my theater training, so that was to be a playwright, is editing, you know, because there you are, you're in rehearsal, and you've got some really skilled actors in that room. I have a great respect for, for actors. Mm. And there you go, you actually literally putting words into their mouths. That's what playwriting is. And if you write a bad line, and that line just dies in the mouth of a, of a skilled actor, yeah. it's so humiliating, you very quickly learn to rewrite it there and then. Mm. You know, you change the cadence, you change, you shorten it, you, you just sort it out. And there is something amazing about that very quick way of writing and rewriting. And um, so I learned to edit f uh, very quickly, actually, from, from playwriting. Then there's also that thing where characters are embodied right. in, in the theater, how they stand, where they look, how they look, all of that. I think that was very useful to me as a writer who was going to go on to write fiction. So sometimes we're talking about Henry Miller. Well, Henry Miller only writes about a sexual body, right? We have to have bodies in fiction. And uh, so embodying a character in a fiction right. is really exciting. It's really exciting. The first part you were saying about, you know, the, the lines working or not working, it always seemed to me that with theater, even when it's very talky, even when it's like a sort of clever, clever talking theater, if it works, if it's if it's good, it's because something is happening, something is being done in, mm -hmm. in almost every moment. And mm -hmm. so to what you were saying about momentum and going back and editing your work to make sure that in a sense that, that exactly, we're going somewhere. Yeah. That's the mystery of theater to me, the fact that like words are action. Yeah, words are very powerful. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, uh, you don't want to, you, you got to be careful with them. <laughs> so as I was saying to you before we started, um, you being a British artist, you've heard, I guess, of oblique strategies. Yeah, fill me in. Okay, all right, and I'll fill the audience in. Brian Eno and... Peter Schmidt in 1975, they created this set of cards 
which were meant to, I don't know if people were talking in that way at that time, but get them out of the left brain into the right brain okay. when, when they were artistically stuck. We're going to use them here as a way to just move into a different conversational direction and space. So what Got I'd it. like, we'll go to a website. I've actually ordered physical cards, but they're not here yet. So for now, we're going to use the website. And you'll click the button and whatever comes up as the oblique strategy, use it how, how you will. And we'll just use it as a okay. departure point. Okay. Did you like uh, Brian Eno when he was in Roxy Music? You know, I've listened to pretty widely to alternative music, past and present. Roxy Music somehow skipped my radar. Right. But I know I'd, my first college class, one of my first college classes was in like experimental art and Dadaism mm -hmm. and stuff. Mm -hmm. And I wrote my first paper on Eno and I went back and just like listened to all his albums and learned all about his process. And I'm a huge admirer of yeah, me too. what he did. Yeah. I think uh, Roxy Music was a sort of British thing. And then he, you know, went left and just did amazing, just sort of made amazing work. He's a very, uh, I've taught in art schools. I mostly teach writing in art schools. Oh, I taught cool. at the Royal College of Art in the animation department for about 10 years. And, uh, you know, was really beloved by all art students. He's a sage. I mean, he just invented many very unique processes for keeping keeping the creative the work, work flowing yeah. yeah, and alive. I mean, it's yeah. just, it's remarkable. So shall I read this out? Sure. It says here for Oblique Strategies, this is text by Brian Eno, as you said, and Peter Schmidt. What are the sections, sections of... Imagine a caterpillar moving, <laughs> a caterpillar moving with all its sections moving with it, <laughs> maybe not in a straight line, maybe sort of curving here and there, but nevertheless, all the parts are moving with it. Nothing's dividing off. It is possible though for caterpillars to have two heads True. As I have um, described in my book, The Cost of Living, <laughs> because <laughs> it presents a false head to a predator. Mm. So it can have a head on either end of the body, which so freaked me out when I first saw this <laughs> in, in Brazil. What that's making me think of as well is the octopus. I think it is probably true of the cuttlefish as well, but I know this to be true of the octopus, that it evolved separately from us and it has a complex neurological system but while there is something like a brain in the in the in the head part there are also these neural clusters in the arms which operate almost as distinct consciousnesses so the idea of a single being with multiple motives <laughs> Because there's consciousness in our fingertips, right? Because we, we lay our fingertips on something or someone, and there's all this information That's right. that we're receiving. And I always feel really bad eating an octopus because it's such an intelligent creature. It doesn't I don't feel them right. No, me neither. <laughs> and then those eyes. Yes, I mean, they're sort of like hooded and wary. When their moods change, they can, they can change color, they can camouflage themselves. So we've gone from the caterpillar to the octopus to the, and to fingertips. And to fingertips, you know, as you described fingertips or talked about fingertips, I was thinking about the body-mind split and the sort mm -hmm. of relationship between feeling and brain and how 
I think I grew up a good Cartesian kind of stuck up in my head. Right. And I feel like the older I get, the more I kind of sink down into the body or start to, I mean, number one, the body won't leave you alone at some point. <laughs> but number two, I start to feel that there's a lot of information that is coming to us from the body in terms of feeling, in terms of relating to the world, that it's like a dire mistake to remain kind of up in the talky brain all the time. Well, it's a coexistence, that? isn't yeah, it? Yeah. It's, uh, we're together in this thing. <laughs> and so we've got to listen to each other and sometimes fight with each other. Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, unlike the octopus, it'd be quite cool to be able to camouflage, you know, <laughs> when, when, when things get difficult, just to be able to, like, disappear it apparently into the wall or, or, or something like that. What about the computer as a brain then? My youngest daughter's just started university uh. in a, a northern city in Britain called Newcastle. So I took her there to settle her in and I checked into a hotel and the it was raining outside. It was like uh, nine in the evening. I'd just taken her out for this great welcome to uh, university dinner. She was with her pals in, in her halls of residence. And the receptionist at this hotel, uh, there was a like a Japanese tourist in front of me, and he asked her for some toothpaste. He'd forgotten his toothpaste. And she said, I look forward to the day robots will check in because they don't have any teeth. <laughs> And it's like he and I just kind of looked at each other. We the, the, like, like, is this the opposite of Blade Runner? Like, I went checked into my room and I thought, wow, I can just see this sort of the only human in the building is this receptionist, and there are all these robots checking in, and they don't have all the problems that humans have, like teeth, yeah, and bone tissue, and skin, and hair. You know, I think I'll do something with that because then, <laughs> because then I thought, yeah, she will be the only frail, vaguely frail thing, human thing in this whole hotel. Yeah. She will have teeth. It was like she'd forgotten, actually, that she has teeth. Maybe because <laughs> she has to be so robotic, checking people in. You know, when I find myself saying there are two ways of thinking about something, I'm wary of that because probably there are more. But I feel like I encounter two ways of thinking about this sort of thing. One of which is to find it horrifying, like the idea of a future, you know, a sort of seamless, perfect digital future uh, on account of all those things you were saying before about imperfection and messiness and the process of becoming and then, you know, joy of experimentation and discovery and et cetera, et cetera. It's like, good to cut to the chase sometimes, though, and nail an argument and describe something perfectly. So, you know, that thing about chaos and order right. is that they are twins and... Um, in order to make some kind of order, you need a bit of chaos. And so these things flow into each other. When that flow stops, that's a blockage, isn't it? And that's interesting, too, because you kind of need to stop writing when that happens and right. uh, sort of go for a swim or a, <laughs> a, a beer or, or a walk or or something like that. Rain's very good for writing. I I really love writing when it's raining outside. 
more than the sunshine because then I want to be in the sunshine. I want to be out there, but there's something about rain. I said in um, Swimming Home, in my novel Swimming Home, I think I write a lot about rain. It's like rain always makes sorrow seem bigger and hard things softer. There's something kind of transforming about rain. Britain's very, it rains all the time. Yes, so I was going to say you're so in you the right as, place. So, right? so you might as well get something from the really foul weather, right? <laughs> going back to something you were saying earlier about editing and mm. being, being a fierce editor of your own work, I think about those two minds, the writing mind, which is the mind of discovery, the mind of pushing, the mind of not knowing maybe what's coming next. And the editing mind, which which feels like, an, an, in a mm. sense, a narrowing and potentially a more tense mind, although maybe one gets less tense at that process over time. But I wonder, like, how you kind of move between those modes. Do you see them, you know, do you see them as distinct? I modes? have a very, uh, when I start to write a novel, I always write a very permissive first draft. So in a way, I say to myself, okay, this is the only draft where anything can happen. You drill down, you go, you go in, it can be as messy. I allow myself to really have a, a stretch mm. <laughs> that I know is not going to get past me second draft. Okay. <laughs> so I say, is, okay. Is there ever a part of you though, while you're stretching out in that way that says, okay, I'm actually making a lot more work for myself down the road when I yeah. have to put on the editing hat and definitely, <laughs> but, 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 but actually I have learned that it's better to to not be too much of a control freak on that first draft mm -hmm. because I'm going to be such a control freak. To get the final edit past me, I guess I'm going to be the toughest editor of all, even when it goes to my publisher and my agent, if it has to get past me. So the first draft is a permissive draft. Then the second draft is like, oh, what are you going to do with this mess? Mm -hmm. Because I haven't tidied it up. And then I'm looking through it and I'm thinking, yeah, I can live with you. We can work together. I'm looking at a scene. I'm looking at a thought. I'm looking at a character. I'm looking at uh, all kinds of things. And then I really begin to work the opening of the novel. And the novel, I can't move. I'm not the sort of writer who can write like, chapter one and then go on to chapter four. I don't understand how I could do that. Uh, it takes me the longest to write the setup. Okay. So for Swimming Home, 12 pages like took me months Wow. because I realized that I was introducing 12 characters in that opening or maybe eight, I can't remember, a lot of characters in that opening chapter. I would say to my students, if they were trying to do that, hey, you don't have to do that. You know, I, I don't advise it. <laughs> Why don't you introduce like three, three characters? But I knew that all eight of them would have to be present in that first chapter. And so I just go with the flow and the agony of it. And I get that opening chapter in Hot Milk and in The Man Who Saw Everything, that's going to take me the longest to do. And when that's done, everything else flows relatively easily. A relative, not easily, but, you know, flows, f begins to flow. The start of the book is always in conversation with the end of the book. And here's a weird thing. 
I've sort of discovered that the way I feel when I finish a book is how the reader's going to feel. So we're not talking thinking here because all the thinking's sort of been done. It's folded into the book. So when I finished Swimming Home, I felt really heartbroken. <laughs> there, there, there was an amazing reader who set up a kind of Twitter thing when she'd read Swimming Home. She said, you have ripped out my heart. Now wash your hands. <laughs> Such great writing. So that's, that's interesting, you know. Something kind of changes inside the writer by the time the book is finished. I feel differently from the start. Getting all of those sections of the caterpillar working together. That and caterpillar is still moving now, you see. It's moving as a perfect structure <laughs> with all these parts moving slightly to the left, to the right, curving round. It's got those little sort of spiky <laughs> things on its back. So it's a bit like Velcro and it's attracting things that are happening in the world. They're sort of sticking to those very thin spikes and it's collecting dust and it's collecting bits of the cosmos. Probably some stardust mm -hmm. is falling onto the back of that caterpillar. Maybe the a television is on or a radio mm. is on. And there's bits of news, global news, that's sort of like puffing out of the airways and somehow sticking to, and on it goes, collecting all this information, some very small stuff. Maybe someone is laughing nearby and something of that laugh is also sticking to, to those little receptors maybe someone's crying in Poland. <laughs> and that's also sort of sticking to the caterpillar. And on it moves with all its parts flowing together as one. And we'll leave that image hanging in the air and hope that you, the listener, will have the opportunity to have your own thoughts stick onto the cilia of the caterpillar <laughs> that is the man who saw everything, Deborah Levy's newest novel. And uh, thank you so much thank for being you. on Think Again today. Thank you. And that wraps up our show. Thank you so much for listening. Feel free to reach out to me through my website, jasongots.com. That's J-A-S-O-N-G-O-T-S.com. And I'll be back next week with theologian and writer Karen Armstrong. It's a fascinating conversation, very different from anything we've had on the show recently. And I hope you can join me. <laughs>